This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, we're looking this evening at verses 9 through 16. This final chapter, the writer of the Hebrews covers several different uh, matters that we have been looking at recently uh, in terms of brotherly love in the church and expressed outwardly from the church uh, in terms of hospitality, uh, in terms of uh, the purity and honor of marriage, in terms of contentment, freedom from the love of money. Uh, last time we saw how he addressed the whole matter of the relationship uh, between the congregation and the leaders of the congregation in the church. Well, this evening, we are uh, looking at verses 9 through 16. And so let us pick up with verse 9. Hear the word of God. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray. This is your word, Father, and as we come to it, we acknowledge its authority. Uh, We submit to that authority. Uh, We bow before you, the author of this word, and pray, Father, that you would instruct our minds and that you would stir up our hearts to love for you and uh, faith in Christ and obedience to you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together and study your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus met with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, after he began to inquire as to the nature of her personal life, particularly her marriage situation, she began to talk religion. Well, she said, 
You Jews say we should worship here, and we say we should worship there. What about that? Well, as Jesus talked to her, he taught her something very important, that in the new covenant, in the kingdom of Christ, that our worship was of a spiritual nature that which particular mountain you are on would no longer make any difference. But we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, uh, for such worshipers the Father seeks. As we come to this passage that's before us tonight, the question is not so much where should we worship, uh, but how do we worship? How do we come to God? How do we offer sacrifices to him. And as we look at verses 9 through 16, uh, we really have to refer to verse 8, which I said last time kind of rounds off verse 7. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. But it also sort of paves the way into verse 9 in the passage we're looking at. Christ is the same. Uh, and yet, as you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there are obviously some differences in how we are to approach him, how we are to worship him. Is our religion now outward or inward? Trick question. It was always inward, and it always has been inward. Even in the Old Testament, where there was so much of the outward trappings, the visible evidence of Israel's worship, the tabernacle and then the temple, and certainly all of the sacrificial animals and the, 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 the human priesthood and so forth. Yet true religion was still a matter of the heart. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, instructs Deuteronomy. But nevertheless, it was true that the practice of their religion involved a great deal of the outward manifestations of it that we just described. Whereas when we come to the New Covenant... It's also inward, but the, the outward manifestations are not quite the same. And that will become more clear as we look at these verses. And basically, the writer of the Hebrews, as he's wrapping up this letter, this book we know as Hebrews, uh, in a sense, touches a little bit on some of the things he's already talked about, the priesthood of Christ, the superiority of that priesthood. But he, he applies it in some ways here, some important ways. Basically, he has three things to say to them. First of all, we grow by grace, not by foods. Now, foods is the particular. We could say not by outward practices necessarily. But he mentions foods specifically. Look at verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Well, let's go back to that. We think, well, uh, that's always a danger. There's always the risk of uh, being led astray by some new and novel teaching, something that's come along and grabbed attention, uh, maybe even the, the latest bandwagon to roll down the, the, the parkway. Um, for example, the, the idea that the world is going to end on May 21st and that judgment day would come. Uh, and then when it didn't, well, it's really going to be in October, but that was the cutoff date. Um, and no late registrations are taken. It's too late. Um, strange teachings, diverse teaching, diverse from orthodox 
teaching of the Scriptures. However, what the writer of the Hebrews primarily has in mind isn't so much uh, predictions about the end of the world, but as he demonstrates, uh, strange teachings having to do with behavior, particularly as it relates to food. Now, if you know the New Testament, you know that that's not an isolated case, that there are a number of passages that have to do with it. He says, don't be led astray by or led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We think of any number of passages that have to do with with food and the Christian life. First Corinthians eight, uh, Paul is is giving instructions about this whole question of food that's been offered to idols. You know, if it's been used in pagan worship, is it okay to eat it, or should I not eat it? And uh, Paul basically says, "Well, we know the idols nothing, and uh, you know if you eat it and give thanks to God for it, it's it's good, but." He's always concerned about the effects our behavior would have on others. You know, if someone says to you, well, you know, that meat has been offered to an idol, it may be that they really have a problem with that. And, and by your eating that meat, you're giving, giving them a difficult time. So you have the freedom to say, fine, I, just, I won't eat of it for their sake. Um, other situations that arise in the scriptures regarding uh, food, Romans 14, the whole question whole question of the uh, the weaker brother not causing others to stumble comes up again. Um, as I've said before, I don't know anyone who's really owned up to being the weaker brother. We know he's out there somewhere because Paul talks about him. Uh, but the weaker brother is the one, as Paul defines it, whose, whose faith, as Paul would see it, is of such a condition that he does not feel at liberty to enjoy something that another Christian might to be able to eat foods offered to idols, for uh, for example. And he, he sort of summarizes in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, just before that, he says, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died by what you eat. There is a balancing act there. We do have liberty. We do have freedom. On the other hand, we have an obligation as he says, the writer of the Hebrew says, to let brotherly love continue. If I'm going to eat or drink something that's going to be a problem for this brother or sister in Christ, maybe it'd be best just for me to abstain from that. I have the liberty and freedom in Christ to eat or drink, but for the sake of this brother or sister, I'm going to uh, refrain from that. Because the bigger principle, as Paul says, is the kingdom of God isn't a matter of eating and drinking, or even insisting on my rights to my liberty to eat or drink, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then perhaps uh, most of the point of Hebrews, Colossians 2.16. Uh, Colossians is another place where Paul is addressing a certain um, a s- understanding of the Christian life that uh, involves outward practices that, uh, that some would try to make into laws. For example, chapter 2, verse 16, he says, uh, therefore, and the therefore points back to the fact that Christ has set us free. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on to detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now, obviously, there's a lot there, but going back to the very first verse, don't let someone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Uh, Apparently, there were those who were saying, well... If you're really righteous, you don't eat this. Or if you're really righteous, you do eat that. Or you don't drink this. Or you do drink that. And the writer of the Hebrews, as well as Paul, and again, I don't think the two are one and the same. There would be those perhaps who do, but I don't. Uh, Both are inspired, both uh, Paul's writings and Hebrews, of course. Um, Paul would say, and the writer of the Hebrews would say, righteousness does not consist in what you eat or drink or what you don't eat and don't drink. It's it's much deeper than that. And that's why he says here in verse 9, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Uh, Grace does. Looking to Christ, looking to his death for my sins and his resurrection to new life and my resurrection in him and that I've died to sin. I don't go on living in it. Uh, I'm now in Christ uh, an instrument for righteousness, not for sin. That's what he means by being strengthened by grace, by what God has done for us in Christ. That's where righteousness is found, uh, not in not eating meat on Friday or, or whatever the particular rule might be. Uh, has nothing to do with righteousness. Now, we may say, well, we know that, but it's interesting to look around, uh, although this, this may have affected parts of the church or not, you think about what people think in terms of food today. Food is still a big deal today. We heard just recently about uh, you know, the, 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 the government concerned about children who are overweight, even to the point of removing them from their homes, at least for a time. Uh, Obviously, what we eat affects health, uh, and, and there is an aspect of righteousness to wanting to honor God with our bodies and take good care of our bodies, uh, but righteousness before God does not consist in what we eat or what we don't eat. Uh, we want to be careful uh, that rules about food don't become part of righteousness or part of the Christian life. Think, for example, some trends in, food, in, in eating, vegetarianism. Uh, is, is vegetarianism closer to God than omnitarianism, or whatever the word is for I eat whatever I see? Uh, no, absolutely not. In fact, the scriptures are clear just the opposite. In Genesis, uh, after the flood, Genesis 9, God specifically gives us the animals to eat. You know, heretofore, I've given you all the plants to eat. Well, now you have all these animals to eat. Were there dietary restrictions in the Old Testament? Yes. Uh, but they were of a symbolic nature, of a provisional nature. In Mark, uh, we read how he comments uh, in Jesus' statement about uh, it's not what you eat or whether you wash your hands or not that make you righteous. And he makes a comment, thus, God, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. And you're familiar with the vision before Peter. He sees all these unclean animals and the Lord says, eat. And he says, no, I'm not going to eat. I've never eaten anything unclean. Well, that was pointing toward his, his association with the Gentiles and the, the, the impending inclusion of the Gentiles in the gospel, but it also had to do with food, taken at face value. God declared all foods clean. 
there may be health reasons or dietary reasons for vegetarianism, but righteousness is no reason for it whatsoever. Um, I've been tickled. You know, my brother-in-law runs a, uh, a fruit and vegetable farm down in Forsyth, down near Macon. He says it tickles him how many people will come up and say, well, is your food organic? Uh, Seth said he's tempted to say, before I answer that question, let me ask you this. Have you ever taken an antibiotic? Uh, organic's nice. If everyone farmed organic, half the planet would starve because there's no way to produce the food that we need if we all farmed organic. Uh, you know, the, the, that, that, the, that obsession with organic food. Obviously, we want our food to be clean and free from, from poisons or whatever. Uh, but again, it's no part of righteousness or, or free-range animals or you know whatever. Uh, yes, we don't want to be cruel to animals. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes in our society, it almost seems, and perhaps sometimes the church is affected with this, that our views of foods play into righteousness. And he's saying that's not the case. It's you're not strengthened by foods. Your heart should be strengthened by grace. And people who get obsessed with the foods. Uh, you know, what you eat and don't eat and so forth, uh, it doesn't benefit them. If anything, it probably only makes them self-righteous. I'm a vegetarian. I'm enlightened, or whatever it might be. And some people are vegetarian by choice. I don't have a problem with that. In many ways, it's a beneficial diet. But it does not add to your sanctification. It does not make you righteous. Uh, nor does eating everything and looking with disdain on a vegetarian. It just, it's not a matter of righteousness. Uh, but but grace is. We are strengthened by grace. So we grow by grace, not by foods. Uh, then the second thing that he wants to leave us with is we worship through Christ, not animal sacrifices. Now, it kind of gets back to what he was talking about, that old order of things passing away. But what does that mean for us? Notice what he says in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, it's interesting he insists that we have an altar. Because one of the problems that Christians faced, particularly as they, as they diverged from Judaism, uh, because early on, Christians were within Judaism. Just like early on in the Protestant Reformation, uh, Luther, Calvin, others were Roman Catholics. Uh, seeking reform within the church, and only over time did, did they diverge and become separate institutions, uh, uh, growing out of the Protestant Reformation. Well, early on, the Jews were the, the early believers were Jewish and part of the synagogue, part of the Jewish community, seen as increasingly a sect within Judaism. But of course, over time, especially as more and more Gentiles came into the church, becoming separate from Judaism. And as that occurred, and, and especially, although I don't think it has happened when Hebrews is written, after the temple is gone, uh, Christians had both the problem and the benefit that they were lacking much of the outward trappings of religion. You know, the Jews had the, the temple, they had their synagogues, uh, and so forth. The Christians didn't have any of that. Now, on the one hand, it was a problem, because... People might question their credibility. You don't have you don't have what's needed for real religion. You don't have altars to sacrifice on. You don't have buildings to meet in. You call yourself a religion. What's wrong with you? On the other hand, it gave the Christians great freedom, uh, great flexibility, because they could meet anywhere. 
Uh, I did. Even to this day, you have Christians who meet outdoors and Christians who meet in grand cathedrals and everything in, in between. And we can worship in all these different kinds of places. But he says, even though we don't appear to have the outward trappings, verse 10, we do have an altar from which those who serve the tent, the priesthood, have no right to eat. He goes on to save the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. See, the difference is here the altar is Christ. The cross. That's our altar. Uh, again, for us, not something we can point to or take hold of or go visit, doesn't exist, but it nevertheless was the altar on which our sacrificial lamb was slain. Now, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Both of those, outside the city, outside the gate, verse 12, outside the camp, indicate his rejection by established Judaism, his being sent out of the city, and all that it represented for Judaism. It's being put outside the camp. What camp? Well, the camp of the establishment of, of Judaism. But you see, that's the point that the writer of the Hebrews has been making all along. We need to follow Jesus outside the gate and join him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Why? Because the camp is yesterday. Future lies with the new covenant. Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. Kind of the exclamation point to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. I think if it had already happened, he would have made much of that because it would only advance his case. That was sort of the exclamation point that Jerusalem, the camp, the establishment, is yesterday. It's finished. That's what God was doing, but now the new covenant is in place, and that's where the future lies. And that, by the way, he's saying to them, is why you don't want to turn back from Christ and go back to the camp, go back to the temple, go back to the old covenant. That's the past. That's passing away. And the future lies with Christ, and the future lies with the gospel, and even the Gentile mission. But there's reproach involved in going to Christ outside the camp. Uh, and we, they, and we too, need to be willing to identify with Christ, even though reproach may be involved. For them, the reproach of the Jewish establishment. For us, uh, the reproach of the world. Uh, as Paul said, the gospel is, uh, is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the Greeks, it's folly. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Well, they suffer the reproach of Christ because of the stumbling block of the crucified Messiah. We bear the reproach of Christ because of the foolishness of the gospel to Gentiles. But nevertheless, we need to go join him in that rejection, in that, uh, in that reproach outside the camp, whatever the establishment might be. Uh, for some of our forebears, that the, the camp that they left was their own uh, liberal rotted denomination uh, and they bore the reproach of Christ in leaving and joining Christ outside the camp uh, but whatever that camp might be we need to 
bear the reproach of Christ because, as he goes on to say, here we have no lasting city. Jerusalem looked oh so solid. The temple looked oh so grand. Look at this magnificent place of the disciples. And Jesus said, days coming when not one stone will be left on another. It looked lasting. It looked permanent. It looked grand, but it wasn't. Here we have no lasting city. Where we're talking about Jerusalem or we're talking about this world. But we seek the city that is to come. Uh, We join Abraham in that, by the way. Remember in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Well, the same thing. We seek that city, that new Jerusalem that is to come. And so he kind of summarizes, just hits once again at that point, that we worship through Christ, not through animal sacrifices. Christ is our altar. We join him outside the camp. We're seeking a city that is lasting, not one that's passing away. But we do offer sacrifices. And the last part of our text tonight mentions that. We grow by grace, not by foods. We worship through Christ, not by animals. But we also offer sacrifices through a couple of things. One, we offer sacrifices up to God through praise. Through praise. Look at verse 15. Through him then, that is Christ, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, instead of that ongoing service of the tabernacle, that ongoing service of the temple, we continue that ongoing service of praise to God. Uh, as he says, through the lips that uh, that acknowledge his name. This was not entirely unknown in the Old Testament. Turn uh, back to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, uh, where this, this very idea is present. This is not radically new, although you could say it's not entirely the emphasis in the Old Testament. It was there. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 12. The Lord says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's effectively what he's saying here. We do offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is our sacrifice. Not the, not the animals, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the sacrifice of praise offered up to God. Just as the incense was rising up to God, symbolizing the prayer, the worship of the people. Our praise goes up to God. And notice he says, first it goes through Christ. Through him then let us offer up. You see, there is no praising God apart from Christ. We have nothing to do with God without our mediator. No one comes to God through Christ. And that doesn't just mean in terms of salvation. It means in terms of praising him, thanking him, worshiping him. There is no communication, no speaking to God, no meeting with God, no coming into the presence of God apart from a mediator. And that's why he says, through Christ, then let us offer up to God. We say, well, what about somebody who's just become a Christian? Or someone who prays to receive Christ, who prays, well, they're doing that by the Spirit, and they're doing that through the merit of Christ itself. But there is no approach to God without Christ. By the way, 
In our society, in many ways you can get away with talking about God. People sort of apply their own meaning to the term God. Um, I don't remember who it was. It may have been John Piper who said it's important, it's increasingly important for us to speak not of God, but of Christ. Because when you speak of Christ, you're saying something very definite and for many people very offensive. To speak of God can be taken in a generic sense, as if we all just come to God, we all have access to God. But when you speak of Christ, you make a very distinct and definite statement. Now, in terms of our worship, we don't just worship simply Christ, we worship the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But increasingly, as Christians, it's important to make that distinction and not just talk about God. It's obviously okay, but when we talk of Christ, we are making a very distinct statement and taking a stand in a very specific place. But it's through Christ, then, we offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And we do so continually. It's an ongoing thing. And it's the fruit of conversion, fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. But not just praise. Another way that we offer up sacrifice to God is through our good works. We do so through our praise and worship and thanksgiving, but we also do so through our good works. Look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh, we, we sacrifice to God. We offer up these sacrifices through praise, but also through good works that are done uh, for his glory. And for his honor. Look, uh, page over at James chapter 1, familiar verse, James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now, that is, a, that is one way to do it. It's like the Lord's Prayer. That's not the only way we pray. That's sort of the pattern. Well, he says religion that's pure and undefiled expresses itself in works of compassion and mercy. In this particular case, he says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their suffering, to be there for them, to minister to them, to encourage them, to provide for them. Uh, it expresses itself, our faith does, in these tangible ways that reflect to others the same love and mercy and compassion that God has shown to us. When we do that, we are making a sacrifice to God. Uh, we are worshiping God. No longer through the blood of bulls and goats. We don't need that. Christ was slain. It's his blood that sanctifies. But when we praise him, we are offering up sacrifices. And when we are engaged in good works out of love for him then we are offering up sacrifices, as he says, that are pleasing to God. Spiritual does not mean unreal. Spiritual is real. Just because our worship does not involve all the tangible outward trappings of religion, Interestingly, the only tangible trappings that we really need for Christian worship are the Bible, of course, the scriptures, uh, and bread and wine. Apart from that, we can meet anywhere. We can worship anywhere. Uh, but because our worship is spiritual in nature, it doesn't mean it's any less real. Christians may not all have all the trappings, 
uh, and yet their worship is very real. And that's the point that he wants to make. We grow by grace, not by outward legalistic behaviors. We worship through Christ, our altar, not animal sacrifices. But we do offer up sacrifices to the Lord, both through our prayers uh, and praises to him and through our good works done out of love for him and done for his glory. Let's pray. Father, pray that our lives would be sacrifices of praise to you and of good works to others. Uh, Father, and and so demonstrate the reality of your grace in our lives. Father, we pray that our our religion indeed would be simple. Uh, Lord, regardless of what building we meet in, uh, that it would simply be a matter of the heart, of your grace in Christ, of our love for you. Uh, And Father, certainly show itself by our continuous worship of you, whether privately or corporately, uh, whether, uh, Lord, alone with others, however it might be. And, Father, that uh, our lives would be characterized by the good works that reflect the good work that you did for us in Christ, and so that you would be praised and worshipped and glorified. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.